coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and now at the Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Hey, thanks so much for listening to Hometown Stories. It means a lot to us. If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you shared us with a friend, left us a review, or subscribed to Hometown Stories. That way, you basically get first dibs as soon as we release a new episode. You can also email us at hometownstories at wdbj7.com. We'd love to hear your hometown story. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. Dr. Kenneth Guerin, who sometimes goes by Kenny G, is known for his tenure leading educational institutions in Southwest and Central Virginia. He's the president emeritus of the University of Lynchburg, where he was known to bust a dance move in the spirit of school spirit. But the fist-pumping past president also has a military career and a NASA career under his belt. As NASA works to launch phase one of the Artemis mission, Garen recalls his time working on Artemis's twin sister, Apollo. In this episode of Hometown Stories, we chat with Garen about math, his big brother, and trying not to throw up during a NASA experiment. Hey, good morning. Can you hear me? I can, and I'm starting my video. Wonderful. Hi, Hi good morning. <laughs> good morning, Leanna. How you doing? Dr. Kenneth Guerin joins the Zoom sporting a NASA ball cap over his headphones. On the wall behind him in his home are about a dozen framed documents and bits of memorabilia on a desk below. I learn throughout the interview there is a Siamese cat on the bed next to the desk he's seated at, and when he recalls some of his memories, he looks toward the sunny window towards his right. Now, Dr. Guerin begins by giving me a brief introduction to his time at NASA. He started there in 1962, and he spent the next five years in the Guidance and Control Branch of the Space Mechanics Division at NASA Langley Research Center. So... How was that for a beginning? That's a pretty strong beginning. <laughs> That's probably stronger than any I've talked to in a while. Let's back up a little bit, though. Let's go back to sure. your childhood. Uh, okay. When you were a kid, um, you, you know, you have the, your you have a focus in math, obviously. But tell me about your childhood and maybe what your what eventually led to your interest in math and science. And I mean, were you interested in space as a kid? Well, let's see. I would say. That came at a certain point when I had a very financially, uh, I'll say financially and otherwise poor background. Um, my parents finished the seventh grade, and uh, so I didn't have a really strong support in that area. But as my father moved around and got transferred from place to place, ended up in Richmond, Virginia, uh, where I was going to Highland Springs High School. Uh, and my brother, three years older than me, was a senior at this time. Something really special happened. 
While his big brother's chemistry teacher was out sick for a few weeks, Garen says the school principal filled in. At around the same time, the University of Richmond announced it would hand out scholarships to high schoolers who did well on a test. They asked each of the Richmond high schools to ready their brightest students. Well, my brother worked 20 hours a week in a grocery store, so his grades were in the C average range. But the principal who came in and taught those chemistry classes for three weeks said, I want this young man to be considered and prepared as one of the Highland Springs High School students to take the test. So for the, the several weeks in terms of while the teachers were preparing these students for this big University of Richmond test, the big joke is, wouldn't it be funny wouldn't it be funny if Johnny Guerin won a scholarship to University of Richmond? Well, guess what, friends and folks? Johnny Guerin won that scholarship to University of Richmond, and uh, he graduated. Uh, we left him there when he got married at the end of his freshman year. We left him and moved into Roanoke, so, so I moved into the Roanoke area. But we left him there, but he went on and graduated with a PhD. Uh, I'm sorry, he graduated with a bachelor's degree in physics as a Phi Beta Kappa, and he went to work for NASA at the Langley Research Center. Garen says he followed in Big Brother's footsteps, and after joining the National Guard his senior year, he attended Roanoke College. I remember sitting in a German class one day, and that was when Alan B. Shepard went up uh, in a Mercury capsule, just a suborbital flight, and uh, it that's when it really caught my attention. You know, it was, of course, the Russians started with Sputnik. Thank goodness somebody was doing something, and the U.S. was trying to catch up. So uh, it, 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 that's when I really became interested in the space program. Garrett applied for and worked at Langley in the same building as his big brother, but on different projects. This was a time when NASA was transitioning into the Gemini and Apollo missions. We were doing the rendezvous and docking maneuvers with hanging some full-scale uh, space vehicles, the Gemini and the Mercury and the rocket capsules, and then the Apollo command module and the service module. And actually, the astronauts, well, first of all, the test pilots would fly and practice the maneuvers of docking coming together in space. And then the astronauts would come in and do the same thing. We also had the lunar lander that was practicing where the, the astronauts would actually land on the moon where they have, they were having six-sevenths of, the, of their weight supported and one-seventh provided by the rockets in the lunar excursion module, which I have behind me. I don't know if you can see an old version back there. There's a little tiny model, and there's, as you'll notice, the, the lunar excursion module that's behind me has a round circular base, and the little tiny model has an octagonal base. Well, uh, my boss had me uh, create these models. There's a command module, uh, and then there's a little Gemini model next to it, and then over here are the lunar modules, uh, and so that we could talk to people about what we were doing with the pitch, roll, and yaw of trying to bring these vehicles together and letting the astronauts train on. Garen picks up the device that he's zooming on and hoists it over his shoulder to show me the models on the tabletop behind him. But another project Garen says he was intimately involved in was Apollo's launch escape system. And this is a system that looks something like this. I don't know if you can you see that. Garen is prepared. He pulls a paper up from the desk in front of him and holds it up to the camera. I'll be honest, as someone who barely passed algebra, I can see what he's showing me, but you know, I'm, I'm not really seeing it. But for the sake of the visual here, it's a hand-drawn graph showing three flight phases for Apollo's launch aborts at different altitudes. Three arcs, one on top of another, each taller than the last. So the first altitude was the lowest, and that just when the parachutes could right the vehicle and make it land softly in the sea. And the second highest was when you had 
uh, a little tower that you see on the Orion. You see a tower up there, but this vehicle in the in the in the Apollo mission had some little metal things on the very tip end of that of, of the rocket. At the very tip end of the things, you, you can't hardly see them. They look like little dark spots. You do not see these on on the the launch abort system of the Orion. And but in the second phase, they would use that this the canards they called them at the end of that little tower thing to reorient the command module so it was it was facing its back end was facing towards where it was going to land. Also backwards and upside down. They, that the astronauts are upside down when they're re-entering. Okay. And the third one is to they jettison the uh, they jettison the escape tower and then they this but when they do this the command module goes into a lot of rolling. And so then they've got to use their reaction control system to stabilize it and face in the correct position so that they're going to come and the space shield is going to be so that the heat shield will be forward. This is physically and mathematically dizzying. I should have paid way more attention to math class. I'm sorry, Mrs. Holland. But hey, Garen has a PhD in mathematics, so there's that. Working at NASA also meant Garen had some high-profile encounters. We took our results uh, after we got them on this launch escape system and so on at study that found the astronauts could control their attitude by looking out of the window when they were at a high altitude at 120,000 feet or higher. They could do that manually. If everything else failed, that, that was part of the abortion. So we went down to uh, Manned Spacecraft Center, and, and we, so we were in the mission control uh, uh, room, building, and then Alan Shepard walks in and sits down beside us. Now, that to me, that was very exciting. I heard him coming down the hall. He had, he had uh, taps on his bottom of his shoes or something, and he made a click, 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 click as he came down the hall and sat down beside us. He was a, he was a man who had a lot of confidence in himself, and it was probably all deserved. So, so that was a very exciting time for me was to actually go down with our crew that was working on this project and to deliver the results to the Manned Spacecraft Center. And then, of course, we come back. I want to know where you were and what you remember about the first lunar landing. For, well, the first landing happened. By that time, I had moved to Salem and was teaching at Roanoke College. I remember sitting in my uh, uh, little little rented house uh, right near Round Hill uh, in Roanoke and uh, watching the, the first uh, landing on the moon. And, you know, uh, all of the things that happened in that first lunar landing were predicted except one thing. And that was the fact that there would be a camera that would be taking pictures back to Earth of what was going on. Everything else had been predicted in the uh, in the literature about a lunar landing. But it was extremely exciting uh, to, to to see that happen. And and I and you know the Buzz Aldrin was the second man to walk on the moon. And I have one of my documents back here that Buzz Aldrin signed and said. And I have to get it and show it to you, Leanna, because it's kind of cute the way he wrote the way he wrote what he wrote. Garen gets up from the desk and reaches around him and sits back down with a beige booklet in hand. But this is the document, Manual Control of High Altitude Launch Abort. Well, this one here is Buzz Aldrin. And at first he wrote, glad we didn't need this. And then and he said, whoops, I need to insert use, that we didn't need to use this. Is right, absolutely right, Buzz. That was, that was really great. And then I also have uh, Frank uh, Borman's signature here, who's Apollo 8. Uh, Frank, it just so happened, he had a grandson that was, a, was graduating from Lynchburg College when I went down there for my first graduation, and uh, he signed my document. And then, of course, Leland Melvin's a fabulous guy. Leland Melvin is also from Lynchburg, Virginia. 
You may know him as either or both the only member of the NFL to travel to space or the guy who took the best astronaut portrait ever because it features his two dogs licking his smiling face. Look it up. It's great. But it's very exciting to have even had a part. I came back to Roanoke College and one of the tasks I picked up was to, to lead an interdisciplinary course back there of like 150 students during the interterms. And so I had a, a biologist, a chemist, a physicist, a historian, and me, and, and we would teach the course. And then we, we uh, I remember one year we took the entire group down to Langley Research Center so they could see the center and what was going on and all the different kind of lunar landers and all the different kind of facilities they had down there. And then I went around and uh, gave talks at schools. I would go in and like I didn't get a, a request to come in and teach uh, something to uh, an elementary school. I'd get there and it, it turned out it was being a, and it's going to be an all-school assembly. And so I did a lot of those things and I loved to do it. And I would take some Saturn Saturn V rockets with me and and describe the different things in the, in the missions. And so I have uh, I've loved the space programs, and uh, but I particularly enjoyed uh, teaching about it uh, to to students. At that time that you were at Langley, you know the Artemis mission really is sort of the walking before we can run to Mars. Right. How much was NASA talking about Mars even back when you were working at Langley? And what do you think you then would have thought about us now talking about the walking before we can run to Mars? Well, uh, as intelligent as I was and as learned as I was, I was making estimates that by the 1980s that NASA would be flying to Mars. And I talked about how long it would take to get there and how they would go about doing it and that it would probably be a mission that included people from other countries but that it would be there in the 80s but that was i ever so wrong was i ever so wrong but there of course a lot a lot of knowledge was lost uh when those many of the people who put together the apollo program uh moved on went to other jobs or, or just retired hearing about artemis and hearing about the plans that they have to do these payloads to the moon, to set up base camp on the moon, to make that, figure out how to live, as somebody in NASA told me last week, figure out how to right. live in deep space. Right. Right. How do you wrap your mind around that, knowing what you know about space travel? And even though you thought it was going to happen sooner, how do you wrap your mind around how we, where we are now? It's a wonderful process that NASA will do in safe steps. Just like the Mercury was done first, and then Gemini, and then the Apollo put it all together. And so you're going to first learn how to, and they've got about, I think it's a, a list of 60 objectives, I believe, and they're broken down into different uh, categories of things that they will bring. But, you know, you've got your communications that you want to be sure they're established. You've got to have the environment that will support the life there. You've got to look for some kind of, oh, can, I know we're going to go down to the South Pole where we think there's some deep areas and where there's some water because the sun never hits that area right there. And so maybe there's, you know, there's some resources and maybe there's some, some uh, very important minerals there to be found but you've got to get all of that together and, and you've got to and so first of all you've got to get a bait you've got to be able to establish a base on the lunar surface that is kind of in a way sign of self-sustaining well you got power coming down because you got the sun shining on it and it's always shining on the same side of the moon you know and, and that's that's kind of an interesting story in itself and so you you know you got you got a way of getting power like that uh but uh you know, they, of course, uh, if you if you hear Leland talk about being weightless in space, you know what that was like for him the first time. It's kind of interesting. 
Uh, but the, the, there are several things that NASA has looked at of doing things. One, it was like a rotating space station. And I really got involved in that, in that particular study, uh, not knowing I was being involved in the study. They put me on a gigantic like bicycle wheel and with my feet towards the axle and my head out on the rim. And then I'm observing lights, uh, red, blue, and green up here, red, blue, and green over here, and then buttons on this side here and buttons on that side there that are marked coded. And if a red light goes on over here, I'm supposed to turn my head and punch there. If a green light comes on over here, I'm supposed to turn and punch that. And and they've got, they've got headphones on me like this. And probably about after 10, and then they're rotating this thing on the back of the gigantic bicycle wheel. And after this through, uh, I, I, I wasn't feeling good. And I said, I think you need to stop. And they let me off. And I said, what was the purpose of this experiment? To see how long it took you to get sick from the rotation in space. Because, see, it would give an artificial gravity. If you rotated something, you can create an artificial gravity. But I, and I, so there's some strange things. And I think about 50% of the astronauts that go up become ill. Uh, and they have, you know, the, the medications to give them. And they have, you know, the they call it the vomit comet that goes up and does the parabola. And, you know, get, you get so much, uh, you know, free time there. But, I, but I've noticed even the bachelorette and people like to get there and do that flight anyway. So everybody gets to do that flight now. And, and see what it's like to, to fall. I don't like the feeling of falling. I, at first, I thought about going to the astronaut program. And that was suggested that I try to uh, pretty well physically fit at that point and, you know, just fairly educated. And, and, and a daredevil in some ways, but I don't like the feeling of finding. I didn't like the feeling of that rotating space station. So I think I'll keep my feet on the ground, Leanna. Leanna. Yeah, I can't even like read a book in the car, so I can't even imagine <laughs> what it was like. Considering all those five years at Langley, I asked Garen to share with us his best and his worst days on the job. His best day? Going toe-to-toe in the patent department with a name nearly ubiquitous with invention. It, it was a document that I did. It's called A Technique for Visual Detection of Distant Objects in Space by Use of Optical Filtering. Well, I was looking for a, 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 a we're dealing with things in space that are far away, and it's you're trying to figure out how you're going to be able to spot things, you know, how you're going to be able to recognize something coming. Well, I, I, found, I developed a technique where... And, and it just uses the fact that your peripheral vision allows you to see further than your, your foveal vision. So you can see things on the side, like if you're looking at stars, you can see the most dimmest ones on the kind of periphery of you. Well, I developed the thing with optical filters so that by rotating a couple of filters, knowing that there was a certain colored vehicle out there reflecting the sunlight, you could see it blink in the background. So that was very exciting. In fact, NASA applied for a patent on the process and actually, it was two years later, then it takes you know, a while to do the patent searches and so on. Uh, for two years later, they came back uh, and uh, they said, it, we can't patent it because it's too close to a patent of Thomas Edison. And I thought, I've been knocked out of the box by Thomas Edison. Oh my God, how great. It's like being knocked up by Michael Tyson when I'm doing my martial arts. It's like, you, this is exciting, you know. So that was probably one of my most exciting times to develop something that was brand new. And and I, I had a, I, I remember they gave me, yeah, here's a picture of, excuse me, kitty cat. I got a Siamese cat sitting up here beside me on the bed. I was I was getting a, a, an award for this, this technique of an invention. And it was a $50 reward. 
and and that's when I was getting it about was by the, the division chief and my, my branch chief. And I think probably within the month I was going too fast, going through Appomattox, and I got a $25 speeding ticket. It was a $50 reward. And, you know, but anyway, that's that's life. But it was so exciting to, you know, to, to, to be, be be competing with Thomas Edison. I just thought it was great. That's insane. That was, that was that's insane. And like $50, that's here insane. you go. Yeah, oh yeah here's half of it right now. It's the state police. <laughs> <laughs> But I was going to say that you'd asked about the worst day. The worst day was when Kennedy was shot. Here, Garen takes a long pause. And you were working at Langley at that time? Yeah. Wow. What do you remember about that day? We all went back to the office and just sat there. And um, I, was, I was coming out of the, rub, the big rubber dome where we were doing a simulation. And somebody said, Kennedy's been shot. And, and during this period of time, you always had people sniping you know, making comments. And I was waiting for some kind of punchline to follow. Didn't follow. But anyway, that was, there's nothing that's ever happened that was that was uh, more upsetting than that. Shoot, I, I'm sorry. I didn't, shouldn't have drifted back that far. But that was during my days. What do you think it is about that moment in time that ha that still spurs an emotional, you know, response for you? Wondering how life would have been different for everybody if he had lived, rather than what happened. And um, feeling a lot of confidence, a lot of hope with that person, and the the sit with 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 him in office, and just feeling like, um, you know, it was a different world from then on. From then on. Garen says during his time at NASA, he had projects here and there he focused on, but it was the teamwork he said he liked the most. After he left Langley, Garen went on to get his PhD at Virginia Tech and then become a professor at Roanoke College. After 30 years, he headed east to Lynchburg College, which has since, under his leadership, become the University of Lynchburg. But what is it that you drew from your experiences at Langley you talked about kind of like going into the auditoriums and schools and stuff like that. But when you look over the arc of your career, what are the things that you can point to that were born at Langley that you carried with you throughout that career in education? I think a drive to, well, in the Army, I learned that the most important thing was your mission and that it wasn't your personal safety that was most important, but the mission that you get a job done that you were assigned no matter what. And so I felt that when I went to work in education and particularly so when I was at Lynchburg and I started to see some things that were coming out of the Department of Education. It was called the Obama scorecard. And then it was called, well, it was, that's what it was called because he was the one I think that wanted the scorecard on schools. And I read the plans that came out of the White House and I got very upset because it looked to me like they were going to come up with a scorecard that would control the amount of aid that was given to students at different schools, depending on different variables. I looked at their variables, and there were a page and a half of them. And one of the things was how much money people made when they came out of school. Coming from a school that had a lot of teachers and a lot of preachers, uh, I knew that uh, Lynchburg, I didn't think, would stand up very good. And, and so I developed, I, I developed a, a talk uh, called the Reverse Robin Hood that was taking from the rich and giving, uh, taking from the poor rather than giving to the rich. 
Garen says he ruffled a lot of feathers when he started lobbying against this plan. He leans over and he grabs a newspaper okay. he's kept sealed in a plastic sleeve. It's a Wall Street Journal, November issue. I'm down on the bottom fold of the front page. And if you look at the electronic version, you see there are several pictures of me. They came down and took pictures of me uh, from New York. And it's colleges show their lobbying might. So it's the Wall Street Journal. And so I got a lot of publicity and it made uh, some people angry because I told the tale about what I had done. And uh, some of the senators and Congress people, they, they got mad for about a year. And then, and then they were nice again, would hug me again when, they, when I came around. But uh, I learned that you've got, if, you're, if you believe in something, you've got to go at it. And you've got to stay with it until it gets done. Garen says a letter eventually went to the Department of Education from some members of Congress threatening a retraction of funds. When you think about the impact that you have had, you know, and, and with all of your experience, what is your greatest hope for the people that you interacted with throughout your career and education and even through the things that you're doing now? What is the greatest hope about the impact that you're making and have been making? Well, I, I think probably the greatest feeling uh, is to get a call or a card or something from a former student or a former student where I've been and, uh, and, that, and that wants to keep talking about things and that feels good, good enough about you that they still want to have interaction with you and that that's helped their life. And, and it's helping people. Uh, that's what kept me in education. Was I, I, edu Education was what told me that I could get out of poverty, that being in education was my way. My brother had shown me that. If he had become something else, I'd have probably become the same thing. Uh, you know, he went in the National Guard. I went in the National Guard. I, I just followed him through all. I went further than he did in everything, but I, I, in every case, he was there first. So it's best at what you think you feel you've done for people as individuals. And it's those things that, that, that drive you and really makes you feel good. So that's it. It's, it's, people, it's all people-oriented. And if you weren't helping people, it's like you shouldn't be doing your job. You're not doing your job. You're not helping people. Hometown Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was written and produced by me, Leanna Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Roquelmi. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.